that all of you need them. For Grace Fellowship members, we don't see these things as optional. Like we do have plenty of optional ministries. Aaron just mentioned Sunday school. We have women's ministry and men's ministry and college and career ministry and families count ministry. But your pastors firmly believe that you need both of these rhythms, Sunday morning gathering and home group, in your life to develop and grow as a believer and for the body to be built up. Now, with that being said, I want to share with you something that will happen for the first time next week. Next week, we will have our first joint home group gathering. I promise we're going to come up with a better name for it. Uh, But what that means is five out of ten of the home groups next week will meet here at the church for a meal, fellowship, and worship. And one of the reasons we're doing this is because We want to have some cross-pollination in our home groups. Not everybody gets to see each other all the time, and that's tough. But we we want to give people at Grace Fellowship an opportunity to be around and be encouraged by people that you're normally not around and encouraged by. We're aware that as we grow, attendance is normally right around 300 for us. Uh, Our church can't have close relationships with every individual. Uh, we're, we're, We're finite, and so... We don't have this, this much capability, but we're going to do our best to uh, mix it up, if you will. Uh, and there are many other reasons that we're doing this, uh, but I've got to preach a sermon, and I haven't a lot of time to do that, so uh, we'll discuss those other reasons at another time. But the bottom line is this. If you are not in a home group, get in a home group. I can help you do that, and almost anybody here can help you do that. But with that being said, let's go ahead and jump into our text this morning. Uh, In chapter 2, we're going to be covering verses 6 through 16. After Paul has delivered much to us about the doctrine of sin in chapter 1, we saw last week that he turns in chapter 2 to the one who seems to do what is right, and he indicts them also. In verse 5, he speaks about a day in the future When God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now these verses we're covering today, what he's going to do is he's going to flesh out how God will judge on that day. So this morning's message has been entitled, God's Righteous Judgment. So let's go ahead and read our passage, Romans 2, 6 through 16. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, 
and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, this is your word, and we are so thankful that we have the privilege of holding it in our hands this morning. God, we are so thankful that you have made yourself specifically known to us. What a privileged people we are. I just want to I just want to ask that we would sit in that this morning. The fact, God, that there are billions of people on this planet that do not have access to your word, and you have given us access. Thank you, God. Thank you for making yourself known to us. Lord, help us this morning to not take for granted this privilege God, but most importantly, help us not to overlook your word and what you're saying to us through your word. Help us, God, to hear in a way that transforms us this morning. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. So chapter two of the book of Romans has confused many people. It seems to many in this chapter that Paul contradicts the very gospel that he writes about in many of his other letters, including this one. And the real sticking point begins in verse 6. When he speaks about the day of judgment, he says this, He, God, will render to each one according to his what? Works. You can talk back, it's okay. The problem is made worse at the end of verse 13. Check this out where he says that the doers of the law is who will be justified. Now, the reason this is a problem, for those of you that don't know, is because in chapter 3, verse 28, Paul will state this. One is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So which is it? Does God justify on the basis of faith alone? Or... Is it faith and works? I've mulled this over so much in my head today because this is such a debated topic and how best to help us all grasp what's going on. And at about, I don't know, 11.30 or 10.30 last night, I came up with a story. I wrote a fictional story. And, uh, and this may just fly over your head. I'm just going to warn you, but hopefully it lands. And how best to help us understand this paradigm. So here goes. There once was a man who was very wealthy. He had started a company when he was young and had grown the company to be worth over a billion dollars. It was a big company. But he was now very old in age and he needed to hand the company over to his successor. The problem was he had four men who were all qualified to succeed him. He knew these men very well because he had worked closely with each of them for the past 20 years. So he decided to test them. He brought them all in one day and set them down. He told them that in front of them was an envelope. In it would be instructions, their goal, and their timetable. He told them that he would judge their work once they completed the test. Now this wasn't a pencil and paper test. It was more of a project. 
He constructed it in a way that they would have to use their specific gifts and skills to do well. In fact, he had made each one of their tests completely different. He knew what each of them were prone to do. He knew what came easy for them, and he knew their weaknesses. So he had intricately designed each of their tests to not only show their competency, but more importantly, to reveal their hearts. He wanted to know which one of these men, when pressed in ways that were difficult and tempting for them, would remain true to the company's values, and which one wouldn't. And when the test was over, he would render to each one according to his works. For he had the whole thing rigged that each person's different works would reveal their heart. Now, as I said, I I tried to give you this fictional story in a way to understand fate and works. Our God is way smarter than this businessman. Our righteous God intricately knows each one of us in greater detail than your mind can fathom. He knows how this life is going to specifically push and pull you. He knows what you're personally prone to do. He knows what strengths you have and how they can be used to mask your weaknesses. There is no fooling our God. He has given us this life, and when it is over, he will render to each one of us according to our works. Make sense? Verse 7. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Now if you highlight or underline words in your Bible, I would underline or highlight the words seek in verse 7 and self-seeking in verse 8. Because it's in these two words that we understand a little more about the idea of a judgment based on our works. In verse 7, this group is seeking glory and honor and immortality. It's obvious they're not seeking self-glory or self-honor, but rather seeking God's glory and God's honor. Because they believe this is the path to immortality. But in verse 8, we see this group is self-seeking, which leads to not obeying the truth. It leads to obeying unrighteousness. So here's the point Paul is making. You ready? Your works reveal your heart. Your works reveal your heart. Or in the words of my college economics professor, you always do what you want to do. That took a lot for me to swallow when I first heard that as a 19-year-old who bucks anything I hear anyways. But especially for a 19-year-old sitting in this dude's class, 
where I did not want to be at the time. But I was sitting in his class. I would rather have been playing basketball or PlayStation as a 19-year-old. But my desire for passing his class exceeded my desire for playing basketball or PlayStation on that day. (laughs) Some days, several days if I'm honest, I skipped class and did something else. But even on those days, I was still doing what I wanted to do. So what did this back and forth reveal about my heart? Well, it revealed that my heart was divided. I longed for fun, but I also wanted to pass my class. Isn't it sad that this sums up most of our Christian lives? If we're honest, we want to do what we want to do. But we know that we shouldn't do what we want to do. According to Paul, we will be judged according to what we've done on that day of judgment. Jump down to the end of verse 15 and check this out. Paul is making another point in this section that we'll get to in just a moment. But he wraps up both points by saying this. Their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day. Now the idea he's getting at here is that your thoughts will be conflicted. They will be. On this earth, your thoughts will be conflicted. But here's the deal. You have a master. You have a master. And one day, that master will accuse you or he will excuse you. Now, who is that master? We'll go back to verses 7 and 8. If we want to know who that master is, we can look at what we're doing and it will reveal what we are seeking. You don't seek glory, honor, and immortality and end up with a life known for disobedience and unrighteousness. It just doesn't happen. But let's keep going. Verse 9. He says, There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. So Paul says that at this judgment, there will be rewards. For those who are self-seeking, he says, they will receive tribulation and distress. And I don't want to glaze over this because it's pretty awful. We're talking about eternal tribulation and eternal Distress forever and ever and ever. We live in a world right now that is characterized by tribulation and distress, don't we? 
And, and if you don't agree with that, then you have obviously somehow set yourself away from all of it. Our world is shaken with tribulation and distress. Inner tribulation and distress, outer exterior tribulation and distress. And everyone at some level is trying to escape this tribulation and distress in their own lives. But check this out. How does the enemy tempt us to escape this tribulation and distress? The same way he tempted Jesus to escape his tribulation and distress. He tells us, do what makes you happy. Be true to who you are. So much of our mainstream media is even sowing this into our worldview of children. When life gets tough, you need to what? Listen to your heart. God wants you to be happy. So be happy. But these are lies. Lies from Satan and lies from our culture. And the reason we're so prone to believe these lies is because our own hearts have self-centered desires. It's the truth. We want to do what we want to do. But for the one who does what he or she wants to do, there will be no escaping the tribulation and distress. In the words of Jesus, listen to this, whoever tries to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Paul says in verse 10 that there will be glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. So there's not just bad rewards for those who do bad. There's good rewards for those who do good. Doing good in this life is not easy. Now let me separate that because doing things that people celebrate is not very hard. But that's not always doing good. For this to make sense, we've got to understand a little bit of Paul's theology about doing good. And, you know, we've, we've tried in our sermon collab to not jump forward in this book because there's just so much in each passage. But... Um, I think by the time we get to this passage that I'm jumping forward to, you'll have forgotten this message altogether. It's in Romans 14, okay? In Romans 14, Paul is discussing Christians acting in ways that cause others to stumble. And at the end of that section, he makes a massively comprehensive statement. Massively comprehensive. This is what he says. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now, when this text comes around in year 2040, I'm just kidding, I'll be voting that an entire message is devoted, maybe three messages to that one statement, because it's huge. But how it pertains to our passage is this. The good that Paul talks about doing must come from a person who is not self-seeking but rather a person who is seeking glory, 
honor, and immortality by faith. By faith. Everything must proceed from faith. Faith leads a person to seek glory, honor, and immortality. And this produces good works that will be judged and rewarded with eternal glory and honor and peace. I don't want you to miss that because I know it's thick. So I'm going to say it again. This is this is this is big idea here. Faith leads to seeking glory, honor, and immortality. And this produces good works that will be judged and rewarded with eternal glory and honor and peace. Now something that I haven't highlighted that Paul is clearly stating in these two verses is that Jews and Greeks will be judged according to the same criteria. There won't be a pass for any sons of Abraham. Everyone will stand for himself before a righteous God and give an account for their own works. Now Paul does say that the Jews will be in line to receive their judgment first, but they will be judged the same. Very same. Because, verse 11, God shows no partiality. Our God shows no partiality. So the first major point Paul makes is that God will judge according to works. And the second major point Paul makes is that God's judgment is impartial. God is impartial. He is unbiased. The Greek word that renders no partiality or impartial here literally means this. He doesn't receive face. He doesn't receive face. This means he doesn't look at people the same way you and I look at people. He doesn't respond to them as you and I would respond to them. And I want to make this point really clear. And so the best way I can do this is by showing you how we innately do this. How we receive face. So I've asked Cooper to throw up a few pictures on the screen. Uh, Go ahead and throw that first one up. Okay. Now upon seeing that face, tons of stuff goes off in your head, right? Probably a little bit of anger and hatred. Some of you might even be offended that I put him up on the screen in church. But there are many things that happen when we see that face, right? Go to the next one. You know that face. And if you ever saw that face in public, which you probably wouldn't because I think he lives on a golf course, Literally. 
But if you ever saw that face in public, you'd probably run up and ask for a selfie or an autograph. Why? Because that's the goat. Go to the next one. Dear Queen Elizabeth, when you see that face, or if you were to see that face up close and personal, somehow you, that happened for you, it, it would cause you to react, right? If you're a man, you should bow. If you're a lady, I think you curtsy, right? Only reason I'm decent at that, I think we do it at the CrossFit gym some. But, but the point I'm trying to get, you can take her down now. But the point I'm trying to get is this. Yeah, don't stare at her too long. When you or I receive face, we make judgments. That's the point. And these judgments are based on what we know of a person. But these judgments can be wrong. Because long before Instagram, people were and always have been photoshopping their lives. Putting forward what they want people to see. Trying to live publicly in a way that will shape people's perception of them. But here's the terrifying thing about God's judgment. He does not receive face. When Michael Jordan stands before our God, our Lord won't be asking for an autograph. And when the queen stands before our God, she will be the one bowing. So Paul continues in verses 12 through 15, expounding on this point. He says this, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day. Paul is trying to be crystal clear that being in possession of God's law, being in community with other Christians, even being a Jew, will not save you from God's judgment. It is the doers of the law who will be justified. But even when people are far off, let's say in a remote village in Indonesia, who do not have the law, but by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. Now, what does that mean? They are a law to themselves. Well, there's discrepancy about the point Paul is making here, but I tend to agree with Thomas Schreiner, who puts forward the idea that Paul is making a case here for Gentile Christians who don't have access to the law 
or all the traditions. This is why in the next sentence, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience bears witness also. Schreiner believes, because of the construction of the Greek here, that the law written on their hearts is not merely a reference to the natural law that all men have, Aaron talked about earlier, but also a reference to Jeremiah 31, 33, where God says this, for this is in the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The point Paul has been making here all along is that God's judgment is not based on ethnicity nor knowledge, but it's impartial because it's according to a person's works, which, as we said earlier, reveal their heart. And Paul says that their conflicting thoughts will accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now, you've you got to understand that what Paul has laid down about God's righteous judgment in this passage would have been absolutely radical for a Jewish Christians to hear. It's radical. The same way it might be hard for some of you who are here today to hear. Maybe those raised in Christian homes. You've been taught the scriptures your whole life. You've been taken to church. And now you're even raising families, possibly even grandchildren, accordingly. To hear Paul put forward that all these things do not give you a pass before the judgment of God can be tough. So here's what we should take away from today's message, what we must take away. Each of us must personally, personally, at a heart level, deal with God now. You must deal with God now. You cannot sideline him with your religious rhythms. You cannot act ignorantly towards his requirements. You must stand face to face with the one who doesn't receive your face like everyone else in your life. I want to end today's message the way Paul does this section of the letter. He says this, God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. By Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus is our standard. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the head of the body, the church. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, 
by making peace by the blood of his cross. Did you hear that? Peace was made by the blood of his cross. Yes, praise God. Without preaching the cross to ourselves all day and every day, we will very, very quickly revert to faith plus works as the grounds of our salvation. Salvation, according to Paul's gospel, is by faith alone. Faith alone in what? Faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone. And the finished work of Christ centers at the place where stretched out on a tree, he said, it is finished. It happened on the cross where he poured out his righteous blood as the payment for your unrighteousness. So get this. That anyone who comes to him for salvation will be saved. His blood is sufficient. It's sufficient for Jews and Greeks. It's sufficient for sinners and saints. It's sufficient for those who give all they have in life away and it's sufficient for the one who spends their entire life taking all people's stuff. Think about the thief on the cross in Luke 23. This is what Luke records. This is one of the criminals who were hanged, railed at Jesus, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying this, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving our due reward for the deeds that we have done. But this man, he's done nothing wrong. And he said after that, Jesus, he called out, that thief called out to Jesus. And he said this, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And this is how our Savior responds to that thief. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. <laughs> That's good news. Alistair Begg tells quite a comical story about that thief. And I want to share it with you because I think it hammers the point home. Alistair says, when, Alistair says, when I get to heaven, I want to find that fella, that thief. I want to find him. And I want to ask him, how did that shake out for you? I mean, you never went to a Bible study you never got baptized. You didn't know a thing about church membership. 
And yet, you made it. How did you make it? And then he ponders what it might have been like upon him arriving. And he says, I just figure the angel must have looked at that thief when he got there and said, what are you doing here? And that thief probably looked back and said, I don't know. Angel says, well, what do you mean you don't know? Thief says, well, because I don't know. Angel hasn't ever run into this before. He, I don't, let me get my supervisor. And so the angel runs off and gets his supervisor. And supervisor angel comes back. And he says, sir, we've got just a few questions for you. First of all, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? Thief says, never heard of it in my life. Okay, well, let's get to the doctrine of Scripture. Guy's just staring. And eventually, Supervisor Angel, in frustration, says, on what basis are you here? And the thief says this. The man on the middle cross said I could come. Man. I've watched that video of Alistair Begg share that story probably 50 times. And I get chills every time I get to that part. Because that's the key to our justification. The cross of Jesus Christ. So if you're here today, and this message struck you to the heart, look to the cross. Don't spend your life trying to weigh out your actions and judge yourself. No, spend your life being utterly ruined and gloriously raised at the cross of Jesus. Spend your life there. And as you do this, oh, faith will rise. (laughs) Faith will rise that causes you to seek glory and honor and immortality with an incredible perseverance. And seeking these things will produce a life of good works that God will judge you by one day. (laughs) This is the way. This is God's righteous judgment. David's going to come now and help us respond to this good news. Thank you, Corey. Um, It's good news. And this morning we get the opportunity to respond to that good news by worshiping Christ together, by worshiping the King through taking communion. Now, as we get into this, we don't want to rush into it or rush past what's about to take place. We are coming to worship Christ together. There's three things I want to point out that are are taking place as we come and, and take the Lord's Supper. First, we are proclaiming the gospel Corey just did that by opening the word and preaching 
the gospel to us. We are going to do that by coming and taking the bread and taking the juice and proclaiming Christ together. According to Scripture, we're only to approach the table if we have believed this good news. And we've repented. And in doing this, as Christ says,